The passage this morning is found in Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, Show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me 
and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in the midst of difficult and dark moments, like Courtney and Jeff have experienced this week, that you are there. We're thankful that even today, as a group of believers gather at Colonial Hills and worship you and try and bring comfort, that you're going to be there. And what a hope that in the midst of sorrow and loss and pain and things that just don't make sense, in the midst of a broken world with so many things that are just wrong, that you're there. And thank you that you're here in our midst because things have gone wrong in our lives and our church family and many things that Lord, we have no idea about. And you have people here today And you have Exodus 33 in front of us, and it is not by mistake. So would you now do what you can only do, and that is to speak to us by your word through the Holy Spirit for the glory and fame of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask you to honor his name as we study the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Exodus 33 today, and we're concluding the fifth section in our study of the book of Exodus. We have one more section to complete, and we'll pick that up in the month of uh, September. As uh, Mark shared a minute ago, uh, in the month of August, we're going to be uh, moving into a little mini-series, four weeks, on the subject of anger. And the bullet of that is simply that anger is dangerous. And from our church survey... Uh, We found that uh, many of you, many of us, are struggling with the issue of anger and want to speak into it. And so here are the the four um, titles of the next four weeks. The reason anger is treason, and then the species of anger, what are the various forms of it. Don't get mad, get grace, and then finally helping others cool down. Realize that uh, some of you don't necessarily struggle intensely with anger but you have people around you that do and so we want you to be able to know how to help people because we live in an angry world now one of our other objectives in fact the reason why we do a sort of short mini series on something relational and and very very practical in the month of august is because frankly uh, people really start looking for a church again as the school year starts so it presents a really unique opportunity for us that if you know somebody um who doesn't go to church, this is the moment to ask them to come to church. Let me tell you how to do that. What you do is you approach them and say, hey, for the next four weeks, our, our church is talking about something that I really need, um, and I, I think it, it's really practical, and would love to have you come and join us. We're talking about the subject of anger, and I don't know about you, but that's something I need to work on, and would love to have you come with us. So that's one way to invite them. Here's another way. You could say, hey, bro, you got an issue, and you need to come to 
church because you're like seriously hardcore mad, right? So don't get mad, get church and have them come. And so if you know someone well enough, you can invite them that way as well. So two strategies, both of which are intended for you to use this as a platform for outreach. Let me just say this strongly as I can. Don't waste this opportunity. Live is not just about your needs. It's about an opportunity to invite people to come and join us uh, for worship. So please, uh, we need you to do that. um, And the gospel needs you to do that. So pray about that and see if the Lord would open a door and open your mouth and open a heart. So Exodus 33 follows the incident of the golden calf. That's what we looked at last week where we saw the lure and the lunacy of idols. We saw that idolatry in all its forms, which was evident in um, Exodus 34, or or 32 rather, um, creates a lure, a desire. Idols are attractive, and and we talked about why they're attractive. And then it creates a lunacy, a, a sense of you lose your moorings. And here Israel is at the base of this mountain, and they're worshiping this golden calf. They've taken... God into their own hands, so to speak. It's a very, very dark moment in Israel's history. And frankly, in Exodus 33, the future of this nation is uncertain. We know the rest of the story and we know what happens. And eventually Israel gets into the promised land throughout the Old Testament. But at this moment in the biblical narrative in the book of Exodus, it's, it's not really clear as to what God is going to do with Israel. He threatens that he's not going to go with them. He tells them to go into the promised land, but says that he's not going. And God isn't being vindictive here. He is legitimately concerned about the contrast between his holiness and the people's stubbornness. He's legitimately alarmed that his righteousness cannot be in the midst of a people who are this hard-hearted or this stiff-necked. So what we're going to talk about today is the importance of God's presence. The reason that that is a concern about whether or not God can be with this people who are so stubborn and so stiff-necked is because of the beauty of what His presence really means. That this presence of God thing in the Bible is huge. In fact, it's the reason that Jesus came and died. And we're going to connect Exodus 33 to The reality of the beautiful promises that Jesus gives us about his presence. And that relates today in your life. And for some of you, it's really important because you're in the middle of a really bad scenario. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a marriage situation. Maybe it's a job thing or a kid thing or something else. And you've come to church today and you're in a large group of people. And you just... All alone. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you from God's word today, you are not alone. And everything about God's presence in Exodus 33, and everything about Jesus' life, is all about what it means to not be alone. So, what's the big deal with God's presence? Well, there's, there's eight implications here of God's presence that I want to show you first, and then we'll talk about how Jesus connects all of this. The first is this. You need to know that God's presence could be dangerous. The text begins in Exodus 33 with a restatement of the plan. And the plan was for them to be led to the land of promise. Verse 3. 
go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a restatement. We've already heard this before. We've heard this at the burning bush when God calls Moses. It was all about, I'm going to take these people. I'm going to pull them out of Egypt. I'm going to bring them to a promised land, the promised land, the promised land. When, when, when the plagues come, the plagues are about the promised land, about God leading his people. So this is not a new thought, this land flowing with milk and honey so god's command leave sinai and go to the promised land this is the mission of israel this is why they are at the base of the mount in the first place but the instruction from god here is not good news it's alarming because of what happens in the latter part of verse three it says go up to a land flowing with milk and honey and here is the statement if there's one little verse that you or phrase that you should underline next is 33 it is this one But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. That is a frightening statement. God says, go to the promised land. It's flowing with milk and honey, but here's the deal. I'm not going. And the reason that I'm going is because if I go with you, I know who I am and I know who you are. It's not going to work, and I will consume you along the way. What's remarkable, church, is that the plan from the very beginning in Exodus has been for God to rescue his people. It was so that they could be brought near to God. And here they are. They're his people. They're his firstborn son. They belong to him. And what God is saying is, I can't go with you because you are too sinful. God isn't being ridiculous. He's not being vindictive. He's not punishing them. This is the reality of what it means for God to be God. That God is so glorious, so holy, that sinful human beings without atonement can't be in his presence. In other words, that the holiness of God is not safe for sinful people. Those of you who are C.S. Lewis fans, or you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or you've watched at least the movie... um, you will hopefully remember what Mr. Beaver said to Lucy about Aslan. He said, of course, Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. That's what I love. I, I love the, the lesson that Israel needed to learn. At the base of Mount Sinai, we talked about this, I don't know, four, five, six weeks ago. The mountains smoking, don't come near. The lesson 101 for Israel and lesson 101 for us is this. God likes you, but he is not like you. you got to get that into your brain. God loves you, but he is not like you. And when the people heard this news, that, that God was saying, go, but I'm not going, it was devastating. Look at verse 4. When the, when the people heard this disastrous word, yeah, you bet it was disastrous, God's presence could be dangerous. We'll talk about this more later, but I think part of the beauty of heaven is going to be that when you behold the glory of God and you're able to see it and all that it is, you won't believe that you can exist in that realm. And frankly, you couldn't. Without the protective robe of Christ's righteousness, you had a robe on. It's got his name and the tag. Without his robe of righteousness around you, you wouldn't be able to be there. And the marvel and the glory of heaven is we are beholding the glory of a holy, infinite God, and we can still live. God's presence could be dangerous. He likes you. He's not like you. Secondly, God's presence created and demanded humility. Verse 5, God gives an explanation again as to why he can't go with them. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. For if a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. 
Therefore, what does he say? So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So these ornaments were the stuff that they had collected and were given from the people of Egypt when they left after the tenth and final plague. And it may be that these ornaments were sort of a thing of pride for them. And so God says, take off your ornaments. Take all the decorations off. It's just going to be you and me and none of your fancy dress work. Don't be putting all this stuff on. It's just you and me. Or it may have been that, remember, these ornaments, these rings, were part of what they used in order to form the golden calf. Regardless, the point is found in verse 6. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Those ornaments, they didn't wear them again. Because those ornaments represented a major failure in their life. And yet, as we know, God favors them with his presence, and they'll go all the way through the wilderness, and they'll never wear those ornaments again. Those ornaments are a statement of their failure and a humbling of them, and yet God chooses to love them. I don't know about you, but I love that. Because I can think back on my own life, I'm sure you can in yours, some like class A failures. Like ornaments that I never want to see again. And, and, and yet God is merciful to me. He's merciful to you despite our golden calf moments. And you're going to see that he's going to pour out favor upon these people. And there are going to be people who aren't perfect. They're stiff-necked. They're stubborn. They're just like you and me. And yet God chooses to set his love on them. Not because they're more in number than any other people. Certainly not because they're any more obedient than any others. He sets his love upon them simply because he is gracious and kind. So part of the beauty of God's presence is that we're reminded that we wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for his grace demands humility. Third, God's presence creates worship. Verses 7 to 11, it's it's an interesting text, and and what we have here is a a temporary meeting place for God. This is not the tabernacle. What Moses does is he takes a tent and he puts it outside of the camp. The tabernacle eventually will be in the middle of the camp. This is a temporary situation, and it's probably in order that Israel learns the lesson that their relationship with their God needs to be restored. This golden calf moment, folks, was a big deal. And so God is outside of the camp. He's not inside. He's outside. The people are distant from him. God's not sure what he's going to do with them. Moses sets out this, this, this tent. He calls it the tent of meeting. And then Moses goes out to that tent. And when he goes out, the people all come out to their tents and they watch him go. They see the cloud descend upon the tent. And Moses goes in there and he meets with God. As Moses is meeting with God, when they see that cloud come down, they go to the edge of their tents and they all fall down and worship. Verse 10, and when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and worship each at his door. So the lesson that Israel is needing to learn is that there's an appropriate connection between God's presence and worship. That when he comes in the midst, the appropriate response of God's people, whether it's inside or outside the camp, is to pause, reflect, and glory in all of that he is. God's presence creates worship. That's the third thing. Here's the fourth thing. God's presence also involves intimacy. 
Keep in mind that what we have here is a partial vision of eventually what will be expressed in the tabernacle. At the end of the book of Exodus, where this whole thing is going, is they build the tabernacle, and then the glory of God comes. In the midst of the people, God comes and dwells with them, and that's how this book ends. So Exodus, the, the, the plagues, all of it, all of it's about God, God coming, God delivering, God rescuing, so that God comes and then dwells among his people. Same thing's going to happen in the temple during the days of Solomon. During the days of Ezekiel, it's tragic that the people of God don't know that the presence of God has left the temple. They keep coming to temple worship, and they don't know anything different, whether God is present there or not. And then in the coming of Jesus, we're going to see the, 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 the way in which God demonstrates his presence in Christ. And then finally, in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem captures the essence of the presence of God. And all of those things are connected to intimacy, personalness, and closeness. I don't know what the new heavens and new heaven or earth are going to be like, but there's going to be a connection that we have, a closeness and intimacy with God that we don't have at present. The Bible says that we will see him because we will be like him. It's going to be crazy. You could see him and you're going to know, and I'm like you, and I'm only this way because of Christ. Moses goes into that tent. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. As a man speaks to his friend. What a statement. doesn't mean that he actually saw God's face. It's a term for intimacy, closeness, term of endearment. The point of all of this is God's presence and the intimacy that he brings with his people. The fact that God would speak. I mean, just think of what you have in your hands. You have the speech of God. He speaks to you. And when you open your Bible... Tomorrow morning, you get up, grab your coffee, you sit in somewhere, and you read the scriptures, and all of a sudden, something pops. And you read it, and you feel the beauty of a, of a verse of scripture. You need to know that is the very speech, that is the voice of God speaking into your life. You can meet with God face to face in this word. God's presence involves intimacy. Fifth, God's presence requires his favor. Another theme, big picture theme that emerges in Exodus 33 is the fact that God only treats Israel kindly at this point because of his favor with Moses. So a theme that we see emerge in Exodus 33 is that God will be gracious to a group on the basis of favor with one person. And and of course, think of the cross the life of Jesus is what happens in the gospel. Moses is a, a prefigure, if you will, of redemption that will come through Christ. That God, because of his favor upon Moses, will be kind and gracious to the entire nation. Look at verse 13. What Moses does is he leverages God's favor as the basis of future favor. In other words, he says, God, if I have found grace in your sight, be gracious to me. So he's saying, God, if you have loved me, keep loving me. So the, the appeal upon Moses, for Moses isn't his own merit. It's not his uh, ability to perform. The, the basis upon which Moses appeals to God is God. Upon your favor, I ask for your favor. Verse 13, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Notice favor on both ends. There's grace Give me grace so I can know you, so I can learn more grace. Give me favor so I can know your ways, so I can find more favor. So that God is 
a grace-giving, favor-giving God. Any growth, any understanding of who God is results in more favor, and that's only because of His favor. So realize if today God speaks to you, oh, man, I really hope He speaks to you. It means that you came in because of grace. You got up today because of grace. Your brain woke you up because of grace. You have life in your lungs because of grace. And if you hear anything from God today, it's all because of grace. And then you go out and live more grace. That every aspect of your life is only because of grace. It's of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, says Paul in Romans chapter 11. We are a graced people. Sixth. God's presence brings rest. The central feature of Israel's future was the promised land, and the central feature of the promised land was rest. The idea of peace or shalom in the Old Testament is is a vital part of the redemptive story. Verse 14, God says this to Moses, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Wherever God is, there is peace and there is rest. That's the way it was in the garden. It was broken and we're longing for the day when God restores peace. The promised land was not just a place flowing with milk and honey. It was a place for God and mankind to live together. And whether it was the tabernacle or the temple or the nation of Israel, all of them were designed to be a place where God's presence created greater degrees of of peace with the hope that one day in the future the whole world will be covered with the glory of God like the water covers the sea and there will be nothing but eternal peace. Can you imagine that? Does your heart long for that? You know, as I get older... I find that rest, I mean real rest, is elusive. When I was a kid, I could get sleep and i have rest. And you know why? Because I didn't know anything about the world. I didn't know about problems and budgets and bills and people and sin and issues and conflict. Not waiting for the next shoe to drop, the next issue to take place. The longer the track record you get, the less naive you are, the more you know the world is broken and the harder it is to find real lasting rest. I can't wait until there's no more funerals, no more pain, no more conflict, no more issues, no more challenges. And all it is is peace and shalom with God forever and all eternity. For you and I to be able to hang out and be to see the glory of God and all of its beauty. And we'll just, I don't know, sit on lawn chairs or beach chairs. I don't care what kind of chairs, but we're just there looking and beholding and going, bro, we are at rest. Give me some. Hashtag rest, right? <laughs> Can you say bro in heaven? I don't know, but I think we should. <laughs> we're just... What I mean by that is there is just a sense of community and togetherness and where God is... There is rest, and I long for no more buses that flip, no more kids that die, no more pain or issues or challenges, that that we're at rest. Those of you who are seniors can imagine how much pain in life you've seen. You know, oh, the longing for rest, and God's presence brings rest. And by the way, that's not also in the future. You know when I feel most at rest? I feel most at rest when I'm here. It's a little shelter in the midst of the storm. I feel most at rest when my head's in this book. When I'm walking in a prayer walk and just talking to the Lord. I feel at rest. Why? Because that's 
The presence of God. That's why you remove yourself from this body, you remove yourself from this book, that internal angst, that's a warning sign because that's not the way that life is meant to be. God's presence brings rest. Number seven, God's presence is special. Moses valued God's presence so much that he declared in verse 15, here's another little verse that should be underlined, not only the one where God says, I'm not going, but in verse 15, this is a signature statement where Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. That's, that, that's a great verse over your family. God, we don't care where you take us or where we go, but we just want to go wherever you want us to be. Wherever you are, that's where I want to be. I think it was Henry Blackaby said, find out where God is working and then get in on it. If your presence will not go, do not bring us up from here. In other words, Moses isn't interested in milk and honey if God's not in it. He's not interested in promised land and the, and the, the, the removal of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites if God isn't in it. Moses has learned that if God isn't there, he doesn't want to go. If God's not going, there's no point. He also realizes that it's the presence of God that makes the people of Israel distinct or special from all other people. That's what this gathering is supposed to be. That one day a week there's something unique, something special, that as the people of God gather together that there's a sense of His presence. And that's what makes us unique. What makes us unique is not our programs, our budget, our mission statement. What makes us unique are not our outreaches, our teaching. What makes us unique, listen to me, is the understanding of the beauty of God's presence among us. Mediated by the Holy Spirit because of the work and person of Jesus Christ. They were to be a people, Israel was to be a people, marked by the very presence of God. Number eight, God's presence reveals His glory. The final implication is connected to the glory of God. And Moses is granted his request... In verse 17, because he has found favor with God, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. Notice, because of the favor of one man, the nation receives the presence of God. So Moses receives what he's asked for. And then in verse 18, he asks for something else. And he says this, verse 18, please show me your glory. Why did he say that? Why not just say, whew, okay, good. I'm going back down. Pray for me. Why why does he say, show me your glory? There must have been something about the glory of God, something that he got a little bit of a glimpse of, something that was attractive and appealing, such that he wanted to see more of it. There's got to be something here. Jesus in John 17, when he prays to the Father, this is what he prays. He says, Father, I desire that my disciples may be with me where I am. Here's why he says this. To see my glory that you have given me. Jesus says, I want my disciples to be with me so that they can see my glory. I think what's going on here is that there is something so 
so unbelievably attractive, something something so appealing and life-giving and beautiful about the glory of God that when you've seen a little glimpse of it, you want more and more and more and more. You see it and you're like, that's beautiful. I want to see more of that. And you see it again. That's awesome. I want to see more of it. And I think that the new heaven and the new earth is going to be a continual, eternal beholding of the glory of God that will never end. And we will be addicted to the glory of God and it will be right and righteous and pure and the very best in all of the universe. If God's glory is the ultimate thing in all of the universe, then it would make sense that as human beings, we would be made for it, long for it, desire it, and when you get a little glimpse, you want more. And I think this is what is happening with Moses. He sees a glimpse, and he says, I want more of you. I want more of you. I want to see more. I want to see more. And God says, you can't see me face to face, but I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock, and when I come by, I'm going to declare my name, and I'm going to remove my hand. You'll see my backside But you can't see my face. And that's what God does for Moses. So we have this presence thing. The presence of God reveals God's glory. Something that is more glorious than we could ever possibly imagine. So here's my question. In the Bible, in our church, and in your life, how important is the presence of God? And I would tell you, in the Bible, in the church, and in your life, we ought to view the presence of God as everything. It was everything for Israel, it is everything for the church, and it is everything for you and me. And it is the thing that Jesus purchased, giving everything, so you could possess the presence of God, which is everything. Without Him, there is no presence of God. Israel's identity, their survival, their sustenance, their power, their success was all dependent on the personal presence of God. And I would argue you and I are no different. Our identity, our survival, our sustenance, our power, our success, they're all dependent on the presence of God. That the presence of God is everything. So let me help you understand what I mean by this. What is the promise and what is the hope of his presence? How do we think about this from a New Testament angle? Because Exodus 33 is just a platform to help us understand the context of the gospel. Think first with me about John chapter 1. When John describes the incarnation of Jesus, he says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. So the remarkable thing about being around Jesus, the remarkable thing for John, is that they have the presence of God in the flesh, walking on earth. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us such that we can behold His glory. The beautiful message of the Incarnation is that God comes to sinful human beings. He comes near. He condescends to us. He comes to us so that we can behold His glory. It's an unbelievable statement in John chapter 1. It is mercy. It is grace. The whole life and the ministry of Jesus is intent on this presence of God. His aim in life is to take away the thing that removes the presence of God, that serves as a barrier to the presence of God, that being sin. 
Sin is the problem that causes God to be dangerous. Sin is the thing that causes separation between us and our Creator. Sin is the problem. It's the reason why there's death. It's the reason why there's sickness. It's the reason why we have a broken world. And Jesus comes in order to remove this thing that creates separation from the very presence of God. He died in order to make the presence of God possible. So if you've never given your heart and life to Christ, if you've never, as the Bible says, repented, understood that you're a sinner, opened your heart and said, I can't, I can't come to God on my own. I need somebody else to clean me up on the inside. And so I receive Christ as my Savior. If you've never done that, the fact of the matter is between you and your God is a barrier, and it's the barrier of your own sin. You can't remove it. Church attendance can't remove it. Doing religious works can't remove it. Fasting can't remove it. The only thing that can remove that is the shed blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sins. And when that happens, the Bible says that God takes you who were far off from the presence of God, and he makes you near. So now there is a personal relationship with your creator, a personal relationship with Jesus that results in the personal presence of God. He becomes your friend. Do you know what hell is? Hell is separation from God eternally. I suspect that part of the difficulty and the torment of hell is the fact that God is not there. And my guess is, although I can't prove this in Scripture, my guess, not only is God not there, but you are all alone. You ever been alone? Remember as a little kid when you were lost? Remember how scary that was? A sense of, I don't know where I am, I don't know where these people are, where in the world are my parents? A sense of being lost... And what God does is through Christ, he, he brings us out of this self-made isolation of our own self-centeredness. We, we, we build our own little prisons of self-centeredness. We want to be our own little king of our own little castle. And what we don't know is we end up building ourselves a prison. And Christ comes and he, he busts us out of that self-made prison and takes away our sin so that we can have a new king. And have the presence of God. But there's more. This isn't, this isn't all that there is. There's even more. Jesus, as he leaves, promises that between his departure from earth and his eventual return, between where we live now and the coming future in the new heavens and the new earth, he sends us the Holy Spirit, which is the personal presence of God, the personal presence of Christ to be our comforter. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14. This is 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. What's he talking about, peace? He's talking about that the Holy Spirit is the part of the Godhead that helps us to feel internal rest. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And to guarantee that, he gives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who dwells and lives within the hearts of those who know Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. When you, when you feel 
bad about what you do and it's as though god says hey you shouldn't go there you should go here you shouldn't do this that's that's the holy spirit when you read the word and something pops off of a page and you feel like wow god is here he is he's there by the holy spirit when a word that comes through a song just touches your heart and you think oh god this was just for me today it was and that's the holy spirit and when a word from my mouth hits your heart and you think that word from the bible was just for me it was designed orchestrated and applied by the holy spirit it is a message from god that he loves you even though he's not like you but it's because of his son and then finally there is a wonderful promise in the presence of god i think that there are few emotions scarier or more frightening than the idea of being alone Jesus, when he's on the cross, he experiences that. What does he say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I know there are a ton of you today who feel alone. You feel alone in your marriage. You feel alone trying to work it out with your kids. You feel alone trying to slug it out with particular sin issues that you're wrestling with. You feel alone because you've got a a diagnosis that's still out there. You live with the sense of, I don't know if I'm ever going to really be healed. Or you're alone, you're a a single adult, and you don't want to be alone. Or you just feel like the crushing weight of the world is just pressing on you or you have none of those feelings and i'm telling you one day you will i guarantee it if you haven't had hard times in your life you're just not old enough yet happy day right (laughs) that is true right life is full of troubles that isn't a hopeless statement that is a fact the hope in that is this But the Bible promises that Jesus not only purchased your future presence with God, he promises the presence of God even now. He promises us that there's never a moment in life, listen to me, there is never a moment in life when God has walked away from you. He has never, in Christ, he will never say, you go ahead and go on to that job and I'm not going with you. You go ahead and walk into cancer, but I'm not going to go with you. You you, you walk into that relationship mess, but I'm not going with you. No, on the contrary, although the enemy would want you to believe that these things work against you, God's word says, no, 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 they actually work for you. How frustrating it must be for the enemy. Because everything he throws at a believer, God takes it, twists it, and uses it. He throws death. Woo, that's freedom. He throws temptation. That makes me rely on Christ. Throws hardship. That makes me glorify my sufferings. Throws you in prison. I can be free and sing and rejoice in here. Everything the enemy throws at the believer, God can take it and orchestrate it, change it and make it so that it actually works out for the advancement of his kingdom and his purposes. And the promise is that God has set his love over you and there's nothing in the world, not even you can change that. Listen to Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if he loved us like this, surely he can take care of that. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure, and listen to this list, 
that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The presence of God and the love of God are so important and so vital that death or life or spiritual forces or human beings or anything that happens to you now or anything that happens in the future nothing 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 can ever separate you from the love of god he never leaves you he never abandons you he never forsakes you so you need not wonder if you're ever alone you have never been and you never will be in christ alone you have the love of god set over you it's just beautiful There are some of you that the whole reason you're here today is because I believe God wants you to hear that very word. You came in here with a boatload of pain. Life may have been very hard. It may be very disappointing. It may be very private. But I can tell you, having gone through very difficult seasons in my own lifetime, having stood in the brink of very difficult scenarios and thinking, God, how in the world can this be good that even in those moments, God's grace shows up and the Holy Spirit reminds my soul that He is good all the time and His love never, ever forsakes us. So I, I don't know where you're at, but I just you need to hear this from God's Word. Nothing can separate you from him. Now how we're going to end today is we're going to sing. In a moment, Aaron's going to come out and he's going to lead us and we're going to stand and we're going to declare to God this song, never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. You are faithful and some of you you need to sing this by faith you're in the middle of a valley and i don't care if you believe it i'm not asking you do you believe it i'm telling you believe it do you know what i'm saying i don't i don't care i I don't feel like believing i don't care if you feel like believing it be like the man on the side of the road that jesus come by and he says lord i believe help my unbelief right that's us that's where we live And so I'm saying, when you sing today, you are going to say, never once did you ever walk alone. Lord, it sure feels like it sometimes, but I know that's not true. And I'm asking you today to take your thoughts captive. Reality is, though, some of you are really alone. You're alone because you've never met Christ. And oh, what a joy. Afterwards, we would love to have somebody share with you or pray over you. You don't need to walk alone a single day. It's your sin that's the problem. And I want to woo you to Christ today because the reality is God didn't intend for you to live this way. Sin is bad. Death is awful. It's a reminder that life is broken and Jesus can bring it together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have never left us alone. Man, we need to know that. Life is hard. Hard is really hard. Thank you that it's not bad. And it's not bad because you are good. And so we just want to breathe that in so it can last for another week. And then we can come back and be reminded of these truths that we know and we believe, but our belief leaks, God. So for my brothers and sisters today who are under a crushing weight of loneliness, 
Lord, I pray that they would breathe in your grace. They would live in what it means to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in them, both to work and to will for your good pleasure. Thank you that we never walk alone. Church, afterwards, there'll be some brothers and sisters up here who their sole reason is to pray God's truth into your hearts. And there are some of you who need to come and you need to humble yourself and say, I need somebody to pray over me because I'm having a hard time believing that I'm not alone. And they'll be here to push God's truth into your soul. And some of you need that today. So don't leave empty-hearted when you have all of these great truths. Never once... Did you ever walk alone? I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming. God bless you.